before we move into our examination tonight, I would like to invite you to take yet another level of renunciation. As we've listened to the reports in our interviews in the course of these last couple of days, it has seemed to me that it would maybe be beneficial to us individually and as a group to take the renunciations of the renouncing judging mind, comparing mind, and fixing mind. So take just a moment, see if you're actually willing to participate in that. What you might discover is you kind of like your judging mind, even though it complains about you a lot. Or if you have a lot of aversion to other people or to things around the retreat center, you like that in some way, you like that complaining. Or this comparing mind that it's, oh, that comparing mind's very entertaining. Mm. Oh, fixing mind's very reassuring. That, it gives me a sense of power, a sense that I can do something about something. So just to acknowledge that we, we certainly have things we get from our judging and our comparing and our fixing. But for these next few days, would you be willing to say as best you're able that, that you renounce each of these? Just like you have taken the, the vow of silence and of, of, of not taking what's not freely given and so forth, are you willing to do this? So just we'll just wait a moment. If you are, I'm going to say the renunciation out loud, and then I would ask you to repeat it. So all the Sangha hears you take this vow. (laughs) I vow to renounce judging mind. I vow to renounce comparing mind. I vow to renounce fixing mind. May it be so. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. The title of the talk tonight is Awareness is Your Refuge. And it comes from uh, the Venerable Samedo's statement as such. And uh, we are exploring this tonight because we have worked very diligently over these last few days and we have uh, reached the beginning of the heart of the retreat. These next number of days will be the heart of the retreat. We we are enough in sync with each other. We've got enough clarity of intention. We've gotten settled in enough. It's good enough. We've heard this with each person in some way that from our assessment, it's good enough for us to really come to this next point in the retreat. It's a kind of turning in the retreat where we start to explore awareness as our refuge. A quote 
from the Venerable Sumedho. Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with that because it's a refuge that is indestructible. It's not something that changes. It's a refuge that you can trust in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice. It's like this. It's like this. That's that knowing. It's like this. Not a judgment of it, not a comparison of it, not doing something about it, but it's, it's noticing it's like this and knowing that we know it's like this. That is our refuge. That is our refuge. So let's, uh, let's really step back and put this in the context of our entire practice for just a few minutes. The Buddha began his teachings with the Four Noble Truths. and uh, Leela last night made reference to the Four Noble Truths. And so what was the Buddha doing with the Four Noble Truths? Said another way, what is this practice about? What are we doing here? Rather than the immediate motivation that brought us here, which could be anything from uh, just needing a break to stress release to... Uh, looking for some inspiration, and on and on and on. But this, this deeper level, what are we about? Insofar as we're choosing this, what is it we're choosing? What, what are we engaged in? The Buddha, with the Four Noble Truths and all of his teaching, is saying that life is a certain way. The nature of this realm is a certain way. It's got certain characteristics, these three characteristics of the dukkha and of the anatta and of the nietzsche, that there's, this, there's these characteristics that define this realm. And the first one that we encounter in our development process from childhood on is the truth of dukkha. Dukkha. That there is this unsatisfactoriness, unreliableness, physical and emotional pain, and, uh, that, they, that nothing can, you can't ever get anything fixed, that you can't find a, a, a sense of substance to life and, and, and the material and the material and the emotional wanting, that this is the nature of this realm. That that's the way it is. That's the way it is. And therefore, we have to have some relationship to the way it is. There's no avoiding that because we every day encounter how it is. Not that everything is suffering, but there is always suffering entwined in it. Either in the moment there is an acute immediacy of knowing of the suffering, or if nothing else, because in this beautiful day of the blue sky, somewhere there is suffering. Someone is, is dying unexpectedly today. Someone's getting their heart broken. Someone's lonely today. 
and we don't know who, when, where we fit in, when it's going to happen to us, that even in our best moments, there is this, this it's, it, the best moments are in, entwined in this, this uncertainty, this ever-changingness that has a kind of dukkha to it, that it's, it's just there, part of it. So how do we relate to it? And then, the, well, the first thing about that is are we willing to bear it? Are we willing to bear it? I describe in Dancing with Life, the book on the Four Noble Truths, that this is what makes the first noble truth noble. Why is it not one lousy truth and three great truths? <laughs> why not? I mean, why would, why would dukkha be noble? Because if we are willing to stay present for it, if we are willing to stand under it, if we're willing to carry it, that makes us a noble one. Oh, ye nobly born. The Buddha was talking about that capacity. Thus he could say, oh, ye nobly born, having nothing to do with, with uh, the, the caste system or the, all the existing religious system. He cut through all that and said, if you are willing to bear this with a consciousness rather than being in reactivity to it, that already is noble. And our willingness, our ability to do that changes us. Even though we're still grasping, clinging people, it changes us. Those of you, and quite a few of you are experienced practitioners, those of you who are experienced practitioners, you know this, you've already felt this. It makes a difference when we can consciously bear. So, and then the second noble truth is that there is a cause of our suffering. The Buddha is referring to how we relate to what is. And he is saying that the reason that this is so hard to bear, so hard to be noble in relation to, is because of our grasping mind, our attachment, our wanting sense desires the way we want them, our wanting to become that which we're not, and our not wanting to be that which we are, or what some condition we're in, some situation we're in. And that our grasping around these three kinds of things, our attachment, our demand, causes us to be in this constant samsaric circle of reactive mind. We're always reacting to conditions. If we got them the way we want them, we want to keep them that way, and we want to get more of that. And we certainly don't want anyone taking it from us. And if we don't have it, oh, we want it, we deserve it, or we don't deserve it, or, and we go into all sorts of stories based on our, our earlier conditioning around this. So we become like puppets on a string dancing just to the pleasant or unpleasantness of what's perceived, not even necessarily of what's true, but what's perceived. And then so you could say, well, then what makes this noble? What makes this noble? The instruction uh, in the second noble truth is that the, the, the truth of the, of the cause of suffering is to be known by letting loose of it, by letting loose of the cause. Wow. If we can even for a minute let loose of our grasping, let loose of our, our uh, wanting, our judging, that letting loose is noble. Right there, it's noble. It also uh, empowers the whole walking of the path. And therefore, we become noble in that we are empowered to walk the path. And we do this in... Uh, hundred 
300, 500 different ways in the course of a retreat. We're even a retreat where we're exploring the nature of awareness. We're always suggesting all these ways of letting go. And as we learn to do this sitting on the cushion, it equips us to let go in life. Just as sitting with our own dukkha here, but just mostly in our minds, I mean, there's some conditions we may not like. We didn't sleep last night or we didn't like the food or we wanted more food for dinner or whatever it is. But being willing to bear the suffering of, of this body-mind sitting on the cushion equips us to uh, bear the difficulty of our lives, to bear that nobly, to stay present for it, to stay responsive to it. And just as we let loose of our grasping when someone took the last banana in breakfast in the morning, we wanted that banana. Not such a problem that we want the banana, but our not being able to let loose of the wanting, now that is a problem. And as we learn to work with that and to let loose of that, some little simple thing like a banana or wanting the bell to ring, we learn, we condition our nervous system, we know for ourselves that it's true, we empower this capability that's innate in our mind to let loose. Let loose of unexpected news, disappointing news, things we're worrying about. We learn this capacity of letting loose. This third noble truth is that there is an end to all the suffering, that there is a cessation of this suffering. A guy said night before last, quoting Sariputta, the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, so that we cease to be in this reactive relationship to life as it is. It's just life as it is. We're aware of life how it is. We're resting in the awareness of how life it is, but we're not over on it. And you can watch yourself in the course of the day how much you are leaning into the moment or pulling away from the moment. Don't we all do that? My goodness. And the energy of that and the tension of leaning in or pulling away, there's so much tension. Resting back in the knowing of the moment is like this. Isn't leaning either direction. And it, it has a great reduction that is, as the practice matures, gets ever greater of this resting mind, resting in awareness. And that's what we are exploring is, is the awareness in this way. And then there is the fourth noble truth that there's an eightfold path that leads to the end of suffering. The eightfold path is how we practice to both experience the first noble truth, which Again, I describe at length in the book that we, um, we often skip over the practice potential of the first noble truth. We think we are already experts in suffering. And in one sense, we are. But in another sense, maybe not so much so. Maybe we're not so skilled at the conscious bearing. We're much more knowing it with attitude, this judging, comparing, or fixing. Maybe. Maybe you're different than I am. And so this Eightfold Path is the way, it's the path, it's, 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 it's the Tao of it in that way. And what we discover in the Eightfold Path, that it starts with a wise understanding. 
And that's part of what we're gaining from this retreat, is a deeper understanding of awareness and how it relates to regular consciousness, how it relates to the experience of our lives. And we're also, the second part of, of the, the wisdom factors in the Eightfold Path is wise intention or right intention. So we're cultivating an intention to be present in a certain way. And I'll come back to that a little later, but this is a really uh, kind of critical understanding in my view, that an intention to be present in a certain way, and a way that is wise. In one sense, the mindfulness that is part of the Eightfold Path, which is samasati, mindfulness is sati, as Guy was uh, saying the other night, samasati, this right or wise mindfulness, that mindfulness, what are we being mindful of? Guy was talking about it has a root word in terms of remembering. What are we remembering? What are we remembering? Or nearly we talk about remembering to be mindful, but then be mindful of what? I would suggest that one way to understand that is that it is to remember our intention. And what is our intention? To be present, to be present for all experience, to have the nobility of being present for dukkha, having the nobility to let go as best we're able of our grasping, and on and on. This, this intentional life that we, we're remembering that we want to be present and actively participate in how we meet life, that we wish to cultivate the conditions so that we can have an intentional life, a life of choice in relation to conditions, most of which conditions we can't choose. We don't get to choose the conditions. Insofar as we can, we get the heat right, we get, to, you know, we get comfortable, we, we, we try to have a job we like, and we try to be with people we like and all, but so many conditions are outside our control. Isn't it so? So many. And we can get so knocked off center by that. Or we can get into a resentment that we carry for years. Or a story about our unworthiness or how we're cursed or unlucky or uh, incompetent. or some ter- We've done some terrible thing. All of which is a misperception. And so as we, as we learn this wise mindfulness, this right mindfulness, it's a mindfulness that is choosing non-suffering over suffering. The entire path is to be aware of what's suffering and non-suffering and being able to choose that which leads to the end of suffering rather than leads to more suffering. More suffering is that samsaric circle that you've heard so much about. The end of suffering is getting off that vicious cycle. And in doing that, we're not changing the conditions, we're changing how we relate to the conditions. Moving from what I term a reactive mind to a responsive mind, or a responsive mind-heart would be a little more accurate. So, uh, in that regard, a little poem for you. This illustrates how we can utilize mindfulness, resting back in the sati, resting back in the awareness, to start to change this relationship, just as I've described in terms of the Four Noble Truths. It's a poem by Mary Oliver, a local person here, uh, and it's called Heavy. That time 
I thought I could not go any closer to grief without dying. I went closer, and I did not die. Surely God had his hand in this, as well as friends. Still, I was bent, and my laughter, as the poet said, was nowhere to be found. Then said my friend Daniel, brave enough even among lions, it's not the weight you carry, but how you carry it. Books, bricks, grief, it's all in the way you embrace it, balance it, carry it, when you cannot or would not put it down. Isn't that a beautiful description of mindfulness? Mindfulness is how we carry it. It's how we carry it. This awareness is how we carry it. It's not the weight you carry, but how you carry it. Books, bricks, grief. It's all in the way you embrace it, balance it, carry it, when you cannot or would not put it down. So I went practicing. So I went practicing. Have you noticed? Have you heard the laughter that comes now and again out of my startled mouth? How I linger to admire, admire, admire the things of this world that are kind and maybe also troubled. Roses in the wind, the sea geese on the steep waves, a love to which there is no reply. Relating to life, not abandoning life, not being cynical about life, not being nihilistic. That was the, the Buddha said over and over again, I do not teach nihilism, but a way of relating to life that allows us to be, be in life, but not defined by life in terms of that dukkha aspect of life that is so strong, so prevalent. As we start to explore the nature of awareness and to cultivate it, our ultimate aim, as Ajahn Amaro said that I think I read the other night, is a kind of subjectless, objectless awareness. The heart rests in the quality of open, spacious knowing. And there is a recognition of the mind's own intuitive nature. The objective, the ultimate aim, is subjectless, objectless awareness, the quality of open, spacious knowing, and there's a recognition of the mind's own intrinsic nature. This can sound heady, complicated, but it's not. It's just this simple knowing that we know. But it is subtle. If you remember when you first started mindfulness, Everybody told you it was simple, but it didn't seem simple. Like, well, is this it? Is that mindful? What's mindfulness? Am I being mindful now? Am I not being mindful now? And years and years into practice, you can go, I don't understand mindfulness at all. Have I ever been mindful? Those are actually healthy signs. Those aren't really problems when we question that deep level and sort of start over. But it is pointing to the fact that sati, this, this, this mindfulness, has a subtleness. And as we start to explore it, 
we are therefore exploring something that's subtle, that's right there in front of us, but we don't quite know how to line up to feel it. We don't know, and we have to learn, and it takes time in that way. Ajahn Chah uh, would uh, use this saying that, that we're often looking for the horse that we're riding. And uh, so it is with the awareness. This nature of mind, this, this resting in awareness, this, this knowing the awareness. It's, it, we're looking for what we're already experiencing. But we're looking over there, we're looking over here, we're taking a, a, a questionnaire that we're giving ourselves. Was this mind? Is this, is this the awareness of awareness or is this the awareness? We're, we're doing everything other than just being with our experience. Almost all of us, certainly, was my experience in first working with all of this. So the rest of this retreat, we are now turning to exploring the nature of awareness in a more direct way. We started by just bringing up the topic of awareness, which raised a lot of questions. Some people came to this retreat not understanding, not having noticed the title. What are they doing talking about awareness? Huh, this is news. <laughs> so we, we, we've, we've introduced it, we've talked about it, we've seen how we can be have consciousness of our experience, that we're having an experience. As, again, Guy in his talk was talking about consciousness at the ear, consciousness at the eye, and so through each of the sense gates, this kind of vinyana, this consciousness. And now we're going to turn back and start to look at that capacity that can know we're being conscious. So we're having an experience, and we know we have an experience because of consciousness, this vinyana. And then we are aware that we're conscious. That's what we've been doing. We've been, we're aware that we're conscious. We're aware of this. There's an awareness. Now we're going to turn back and say, well, what is that awareness? What is that? What is that? We're going to use the same mindfulness tools that you've practiced in every retreat and going to your local sangha, your home practice. We're going to use this aiming or connecting with the experience of awareness. We're going to, as best we're able, and then we're going to sustain our attention on it as best we're able. It will be far from what's desirable much of the time. And then we're going to be open to fully receiving the experience. Oh, this is interesting. So right now, as I'm noticing awareness, things feel more spacious. Or, oh, there's uncertainty as I'm trying to look at awareness because I'm trying to make it a thing when it's not a thing. So whatever we discover, there's nothing that we can notice that is not useful. Oh, look at my judging. Look at my not knowing what awareness is. It's all useful. So it's impossible to do it wrong because we're starting where we are. That's what we do in mindfulness. We start where we are, and then we start over tens of thousands of times. That's the nature of our practice. That's really why it's so hard. It's not the fact of the subtlety of it, but it's this willingness to start where we are and then start over again and again. As we do this, we are going to, we will be doing it in the same way that we've done thus far. So we'll be with the breath or or sound or whatever it is we're being with. We're being with the object and we become conscious. We, 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 we acknowledge that there's the breath. We're conscious that the breath is there. We're, we're conscious we're feeling the breath. And then we're aware of the fact or we know 
that we are conscious of the breath. There's an experience. There's consciousness of the experience. There's awareness of that consciousness. One, two, three. A, B, C. <laughs> As we turn to look at this, you know, sometimes the, uh, we, we won't be able to turn. We just, we don't have that. We, we, we just, the breath gets more interesting, so we lose any interest in turning. That's fine. Other times we turn, and the, the breath is, is, is there. We're, so, we're sort of aware of the awareness, but there's so much object still that we're, it's a little hard. It's all fuzzy. That's fine, too. The object may go between foreground and background. So you, the breath may be in the foreground, not the awareness. And then the, where you bring the awareness, you start over. You bring the awareness to the, uh, the foreground, and the breath is in the background, but then it switches back again. It may happen, I don't know, 800 times tomorrow. It's okay. And then at some point, we may also have the experience where uh, how we are relating to the object may change. So someone today in an interview was talking about being with physical pain. And as they started uh, being more interested in their awareness of their knowing of the physical pain, suddenly, although the pain didn't move, there was still pain. Their relationship to it was so much lighter. And they were wondering about that. Wow, how much lighter this is. I still have the pain. If I were going to report a degree of 1 to 10, this is my words now, 1 to 10, and it was a 7, it's still a 7, but my relationship to it's changed. That relates to the Four Noble Truths. And it happened through this resting in the awareness rather than leaning into identifying, taking birth in the pain as we in our untrained mind moments tend to do. Other times what may happen is that the, the, object, the object itself as we were knowing it may change. And we think, oh, well, I'm, I, I, I'm getting lost here. No, the, when we rest back and start to turn and look at awareness, the, the object that we've utilized to get there may sometimes transform itself in some way. So the breath may suddenly have a sweetness it never had before or uh, the the, the, the quality of the breath may change in some other way, or the, 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 the sense of, of sound may, the silence may be what pops up more than the sound within hearing. All sorts of things can happen. And so we start to see that uh, we, can, we can, as resting back in awareness, looking at the awareness so that we gain more access to it. And that's what we're learning, is how to gain more access very slowly, that then... Uh, as, as, as that starts to happen, we are going to start having changes in our relationship to experience. Why that is good news is because of the dukkha of a lot of experience. So we start to have this changing relationship to the dukkha. The object, the dukkha itself somehow changes or our, our relationship to it changes in this way. So again, a very useful thing. As we, as we do that, a wonderful thing can happen in relation to dukkha. And that is the thing that breaks our heart can start to instead break our heart open. The very same thing. This is another Mary Oliver poem. It's called The Uses of Sorrow. And she says, in my dream, in my dream I dreamed this poem. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. 
It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. This refuge, taking refuge in awareness, creates conditions where this kind of transformation, this deep understanding, this deep letting go can occur. It creates very favorable conditions for that when we have more access to this awareness in this way. Let's do a little exercise here. So uh, you can stay just the way you are. I'm sitting up to see if I can change this microphone hitting. But I'd I'd ask you to stop moving around. (laughs) So fill your hands, wherever the hands are. You don't have to make your hands in some favorable position. Just fill your hands. They can be touching something. They can be holding paper. They can be touching each other. They can be touching forearms. They can be apart, touching thighs. Any old way works just fine. So I'm asking you to uh, note what is the sensation of the hands right now. Now I'm asking you to acknowledge that you're conscious of what the sensation of the hands are. Acknowledge to yourself. So just to go through these two steps as we're doing it, you might say, oh, warm. And then I am conscious the hands are warm. And now... Say to yourself, I am aware that I am conscious the hands are warm. And now, take just for a moment that awareness. What is that awareness? What does it look like? What is its feeling to it? Remembering it's not a thing, but what is the felt sense? of that awareness. What is that? Let that go for a moment and open your eyes again. Um, We all met at different times today with uh, Analio Bhikkhu, the person who wrote that wonderful book on the Satipatthana Sutta, those of you with more experience, he's, he's here teaching and going out uh, to the West Coast to teach a couple of retreats for us. And uh, we were talking, uh, Leela and I were together with him first, and we were talking about this thing of consciousness and awareness. And he was saying that vijnana, this consciousness, is associated with all the sense gates. But the, the sati, the mindfulness, is the awareness. And I said, so what word would you use for awareness? He said, sati, without hesitation. And he said, and the difference is you don't have to cultivate consciousness. You know, if, if, if something's rubbing against your hand, you'll feel that rubbing. You, you will be conscious of that experience if it's strong enough. But you have to cultivate sati. That sati is not automatic. Sati is to be cultivated 
Thus we are exploring the nature of awareness, this sati, this awareness in this way. So one more exercise. We're going to do the same process again, but with another experience. So find your breath, direct attention to the breath. Notice something about it, anything that can be general or very specific, just, just so that you really know the felt sense of breath. Now say to yourself, I am conscious of breath. And know it's your truth, that this is true, that you are, if there's any doubt, keep looking. Are you conscious of breath or not? If you are conscious, you can have confidence in that. I am conscious of breath, no doubt. And now say, I am aware that I am conscious of breath. Is there any doubt? Say it again to yourself. And again. Stay connected to the breath for now. I am aware that I am conscious of the breath. I am aware that I am conscious of the breath. Put more weight of attention on the awareness. I am aware that I am conscious of the breath. The breath is now a little more in the background, but you're still conscious of it, but you're aware that you're conscious. I am aware that I am conscious of the breath. I am aware. I am aware that I am conscious. And now let that awareness, like you were turning to look over your shoulder, if you're turning back to look into your eyes, look into your mind, turn and look at that felt sense of awareness. What are its characteristics? If it's unstable, go back to the I am aware that I am conscious of the breath. Or if you have to start all over with the breath, do that. What is the nature of this awareness? What is the felt sense of it? For me at this moment, and mine's a little unstable because I'm, uh, I'm split with wanting the, the understanding to arise and I can feel that, but I can stabilize again, come back over and over. And the first thing I notice is the spaciousness of that. The breath itself, that consciousness of the breath is not nearly as spacious as that awareness of it. I notice the lack of involvement in the awareness. 
the consciousness of the breath is knowing the the breath as it is with all of it going on but the awareness of this it's just it's neutral it's it's got great equanimity it's not involved i can feel the mirroring like nature of awareness the sati For me, at this moment, it would not feel fair to separate it and make it something entirely different from consciousness. But it wouldn't be right to make it the same thing as consciousness either. But that doesn't matter. It's just mysterious. But I know the difference between the knowing of a sense-gate moment and resting in this awareness. What is your experience? Coach yourself a little. Now keeping your eyes closed, continuing to practice, let loose of the breath as an object and choose some object of your own. You could go back to hands, feet, You could choose an emotion. You could change a different body sensation. You could put your teeth together and feel that, anything. And again, note the sensation of what you've chosen, the felt sense. Note that you're conscious of it. Say, I'm conscious of, of this. And then I'm aware that I'm conscious. Do it for yourself a number of times. And now invite that awareness to be the object. So whatever you chose is being replaced by awareness itself. You may have to do it many, many times. You may have to start over many times. It's not up on the ceiling. It's in this fathom-long body. It's embodied awareness. Embodied. And let all that go. I was just feeling the room, and the room actually got spacious. That was a very cool feeling. (laughs) Um, Although you may have not had that experience at all, you could still benefit from the room. This is just one way to get at this. Each of us, all four of us, would uh, at different times give different ways of getting at it. But tonight, for you to understand what I'm referring to, it's, it's this way. I started the first morning with talking about directing attention. If you don't know you can direct attention, there's you. If, or if you don't believe that you can direct attention, you won't believe you can direct your attention to awareness. 
But if you, if you will acknowledge to yourself that you can direct attention to your breath, you can direct it to your hands, which you just did, so it's hard to deny that you can, but if you confirm for yourself that you can, then it increases the likelihood that something that's more subtle that you can direct your attention. If you just sort of assume you can, if you go more easily with it, that's how you can do it. I was uh, being trained in this very sensitive touch so that I could feel uh, through fascia and and, and into organs and so forth so that I could uh, hold a pair of ankles and feel a shoulder. I was very dubious about all this, but it turned out it was all true. And my teacher would say, don't try to do it. Just assume you can do it and do it as best you're able. And it was totally true. It was totally true. If I tried to do it, if I got my ideas about it, and I'm really going to, nada, nada. But if I would just stay as though, yes, this can happen, it, more and more, more and more, I could feel the tightness, the way a shoulder was turned, and I was touching an ankle. Wow. You know, that's mindfulness in its own way, right? So it is that we just assume this. We just, we're just being interested. We're just playing. It's not a life or death matter. We're just interested. It's that curiosity. Ordinarily, we think of the mindfulness the way we practice mindfulness. Mindfulness is like a subject. We're being mindful looking at an object. The object is the breath or the foot or the hands or our emotions or our stories or our wanting mind or Nietzsche or the, the uh, hindrance of mind. We're watching that. We're, we're looking at that as an object. Here, we're taking what is a subject looking at an object and making it the object now. So our, we're mindful of mindfulness or we're, we're aware of awareness. That can sound a little heady, but it's really that simple. It's just one more object. It's just like the breath. It's just that we don't, we're not accustomed to it, so we've got to get into it. Although we, we already all the time access it. We're, we're already riding the horse. We don't have to find the horse. We do not have to find the horse. We're already on the horse. It's in our nature. We just trust that long enough to feel what's in our nature. It reveals itself by our intention. I've told you I would come back to this word intention. So we're remembering our intention to explore moment to moment. Oh, this is what, this awareness, this way. We've turned and looked at it. We've now made it the object. Oh, what an interesting object. Wow. So more like uh, if you're going to the Grand Canyon, you're not doing the Grand Canyon. You're receiving this incredible visceral experience of the Grand Canyon. It's that kind of receiving about awareness itself. This takes time. When we are working with this, uh, as one person very uh, acutely said in an interview today, there's a feeling of non-doing. When we're just resting in the awareness, we're not doing anything. Because we're not even, with objects, we often start to push and pull at the objects. So with our breath, we'll start a little bit, want our breath to be longer or shorter. Or we poke at our breath in some ways. 
or you know, we're we're like having this opinion. Well, I wish my breath were, breath were more full here, or I wish uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. we're just something about you know our breath or whatever the object is. There's a little pushing at it. One of the advantages of of taking awareness as the object is is there's less tendency to push at it. So we're just resting in it. We are knowing the breath, but there's less of the doing. It's not completely free of doing most of the time, although there are moments, wonderful moments, if those happen to occur for you, when, when, when there's no doing at all. But, there, but there's a lot less doing. There's this, this knowing itself of it. And it doesn't even stop there. Eventually it reaches the point when we're just being breath. There's not even knowing. There's not, there's, it, gets, it gets more and more mature over the years as we practice. This non-doing non-attaching, non-grasping at, non-feeling as though we have to control is a way of letting go. Or as the gentleman said yesterday in the uh, afternoon session where he had this realization as he was with the awareness that what came spontaneously to mind was surrender. Just surrender. There is a letting go quality when we're back in this awareness. This is what Upasaka Ki this wonderful Thai woman in this book, Pure and Simple, uh, the uh, wonderful teacher, she says, the knowing that lets go of knowing is very beneficial. There's no getting stuck, no grabbing hold of your knowledge or views. The knowing that lets go of knowing is very beneficial. There's no getting stuck, no grabbing hold of your knowledge or views. If the knowledge is right, you let it go. If the knowledge is wrong, you let it go. This is called knowing the letting go of knowing without getting entangled. This kind of knowing keeps the mind from latching on to whatever arises. As soon as you know something, you let it go. The mind just keeps on staying empty, empty of mental fabrications, thoughts, empty of any sort of illusion. Just this letting go quality that we have when we're in the awareness in this way. Uh, when I was visiting with the Venerable Samedo in February and, uh, at his new monastery there in uh, Thailand, we had a series of morning discussions. And in one of these discussions, he suddenly started talking about the importance of faith in terms of empowering mindfulness. And I'd never actually heard a talk on this before. And he's, uh, in faith, the sadhana in Pali is not faith in the sense of a belief. It's confidence, it's trust, it's, it's, it's placing one's faith, placing one's confidence in something, trusting something, trusting the knowing nature of mind. Trusting that we can know, that we can be Buddha knowing the Dhamma. That this is possible for us. In small, very modest ways. We're not getting all grandiose, just very, very modest. And he was saying that without this kind of confidence, without a certain degree of faith that it, that it might be possible, 
then we won't ever step up and try. And we have to step up and try over and over again to be able to uh, gain more skill. So uh, for you to just acknowledge that about yourself, am I willing to trust a little? What do you lose? Three days? You're going to be sitting here anyway these three days. What do you lose? And what might you gain? What might you gain? Isn't the risk-reward worth it? Under the very least, wouldn't you know more? Doesn't this create a kind of interest? What's that true? What's this to me? What do I think this is? Not as a, uh, a view or an opinion, but what's my felt sense if I turn towards awareness? What's my felt sense of that? What is that? What's my, just to see. I'm going to feel for myself. I'm going to experience for myself. I'm going to know for myself. I'm going to invite for myself. As you do this, I will repeat what Samedo said in terms of awareness as a refuge. Awareness is your refuge. This is the offer. What is to be gained? What is the fruit of this practice? Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change, and emotional change. Stay with that. Because it is a refuge that is indestructible in all of our life, in all circumstances. This is a huge offering. Even a small amount of access to this makes a very large difference in our lives. Its leverage quality, its, its ramifications are so large. It's not something that changes this awareness. It's not something that changes. It's a refuge you can trust in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical, very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice. It's like this. So you can take, you can take any experience and say, uh, uh, breath is like this. The knowing that breath is like this is like this. Of the awareness, knowing the awareness. Many different, you can uh, use whatever words, whatever images that help you. As we start to be aware of this sati in a deeper way, this awareness, this again, hard to define of, of what we mean by awareness, awareness, we, we start to get to a... Um, uh, to something that is a little uh, more mysterious. This is from the, the Buddha's long discourses. Where do water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing? These are the elements that make up everything in this realm. Everything all throughout this universe. Where do water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing? Where are long and short, coarse and fine, fair and foul, name and form brought to an end? Consciousness, which is non-manifestive, limitless, not becoming anything at all. Consciousness, which is non-manifestive, 
not present, not manifest. Consciousness which is non-manifestive, limitless, not becoming anything at all. Here, water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. Here, long and short, coarse and fine, fair and foul, name and form are all brought to an end. With the cessation of consciousness, each is brought to an end. Resting back in awareness, we start to access many levels of knowing. Real uh, understandings that can only be intuited, cannot be spoken of, become available. We start to uh, have a, a kind of uh, environment, a condition, where insight is more easily available at times. So the insight of Anicca, the insight of Dukkha, all the seven factors of enlightenment, seeing the hindrances and with a very clean, clear, I get what this, this restless and worry is. I get it. It's not that I can intellectually understand it. I know it down to my toes, through all my bones. I recognize it. I recognize it. And then you still get restless and worry for a long time, but now your relationship to restless and worry has already changed. This is the maturation of practice. For me, as uh, again, as uh, many others before me, this is part of what makes this exploration of awareness in this way worthwhile. If you just keep being mindful of uh, the changing things and all of this, seeing the suffering and not, that too is enough. But this broadens, this, this picks up things. It, it gives us, it's a way of spiraling deeper into experience. So it's not that it's the end-all, be-all, but that it's a, it's a skillful means. It's a way of, of deepening the, uh, our understanding and improving the conditions for insight and also having some experience, some little taste of freedom, some little taste of the mystery, some little sense of what's possible for our own hearts to be free. Closing with another poem that um, for me uh, touches something that's part of this. Uh, 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 The Venerable Nalio was saying today that, that in the early Buddhism, it wasn't uh, so much a sense of discrete moments of rising and passing, but the, the, the arising and passing of each moment of the, this continuous flow of experience. And one of the things that creates dukkha is this continuous flow of experience. Our ego gets very freaked out about this because it thinks it's supposed to be in control and it, it's moving so fast, it's constantly changing. There's this flow. How can it be in control of it? including in terms of our physicality, when does it end? Does it know, can't control it, can't stop it from ending? All of this. And so where is the continuity in in our own experience? Because there's this constant flow, but then where would it be? Where might we find a kind of, of continual connection to our experience, a continual presence that's a renewed, ever renewing presence? And I would suggest it's in this knowing of awareness. All of these things are moving, this continuous flow through awareness. And yet, there we are, all of these things moving through this field of awareness. And yet, there we are, it's being known. 
Every moment of consciousness is being known as we've cultivated this. That sense of, uh, uh, that doesn't make it a there, it, it doesn't make it a something. It makes it a, 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 a way of relatedness that's, that's in the beingness of itself. It's the being that's that way. And this is a poem by William Stafford. It's called The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. This tying into our knowing, this awareness, this, that there's, that there's a way of connection, for me at least, in my own practice, in my own life. Resting back in this awareness, knowing this awareness, having a direct access to it, uh, as, as I've cultivated for so many years, it's been very important and is very important to me. It is a kind of thread, but it's not a thing. With that, close our eyes for a moment. Awareness is your refuge. Awareness is your refuge. Awareness is your refuge. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.